good evening, everybody. Um, it's a pleasure for me to be here tonight and share with you some of the experiences that I've had as a system engineer working for the South African SKA project. And I'm currently the, the system engineer responsible for the CAT7 telescope. Significant issues is that the SKA project organization has decided from the word go to use a systems engineering process to develop, design and build the radio telescope. So that in itself is very significant. A little bit about myself, I joined the SKA project part-time since 2005 and full-time since 2007 and I've been in the systems engineering team since 2008. Great, my main objective tonight is to present CAT7 as a case study since it's a successful since this represents a successful acquisition of a complex system using systems engineering principles. I'll be, I'll be uh, concentrating on the challenges that we had at the outset of the project and I'll be highlighting some of the lessons learned. And if there's time, I'll talk a little bit about Meerkat and the SKA going forward. Just a little bit about SKA South Africa. Um, the SKA South Africa project is funded by the DST, the Department of Science and Technology, and it's administered by the National Research Foundation. We've got various offices. There's the Joburg office, which houses the infrastructure and ancillaries management team. There's the Cape Town office, where all the CAT7 and Meerkat uh, development engineering team are situated. And there's the Clearfontaine office near Carnarvon in the Karoo, which, where the site operations and maintenance support teams are located. And then, of course, there's the Losburg site complex, which is where the antennas themselves are, and that's located about 80 kilometers northwest of Carnarvon. Acquisition. What do we mean by the word acquisition? The term acquisition refers to the process of going from a set of user requirements to a fully commissioned system that can then be handed over to the operational user. And the acquisition process itself includes quite a few stages that are commonly called concept definition and exploration, concept demonstration and validation, full-scale engineering development, industrialization and production, and commissioning. And just a little bit about CAT7 itself. It's noteworthy to mention that CAT7 is the first interferometric radio telescope in Africa. It's not the first radio telescope, but the first interferometric radio telescope, which means it consists out of an array, in other words, more than one antenna, where all the signals from all the antennas are combined in order to provide better sensitivity and um, resolution. CAT7 is also a stepping stone towards Meerkat, but very importantly, it is a system in its own right. So it's followed all the acquisition stages that I've mentioned in the previous slide, from concept definition to commissioning, and it's currently being handed over to the operations team. As a stepping stone towards Meerkat, CAT7 can also be regarded as an engineering development model for Meerkat. Now, an EDM, as an EDM, it was meant to qualify the Meerkat design, which means it was meant to determine the suitability of the Meerkat design with regard to reliability, maintainability, availability, logistics supportability, etc., while being operational in the, in the Karoo. However, since CAT7 was built, the Meerkat design has changed quite significantly, and therefore it can't, CAT7 can't really be regarded as an EDM for Meerkat anymore. Nevertheless, one of its main aims is still true, and that is to implement an operational system in the Karoo to learn the lessons of how to operate and maintain a radio telescope on a remote site. Challenges. Right, the empty slide doesn't mean there were no challenges. It means I want to go through them one by one. <laughs> Ever-changing user requirements. Sound familiar? Well, we in the, our project had a, quite a few challenges with regard to changing user requirements. In the beginning, the CAT telescope only consisted out of 20 antennas. Then there was a huge injection of more money from the, from the government, which then led to the development of Meerkat, a 64 antenna array. So a huge re-scoping, uh, timelines were changed, the, 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 the budgets were changed, and obviously the user requirements changed. Also, the stakeholders of the radio telescope are not just the scientists but also government. And from the beginning, one of, one of the main purposes of the CAT7 telescope was to 
um, support the site bit for the international SKA array. Um, so from the beginning, we were always quite sensitive to, to align ourselves with international scientific thinking of what the SKA telescope might look like. And that caused quite a few changes as well. And then last but not least, I don't know if you've worked with scientists in your professions, but it's very difficult to uh, pin down a set of requirements working with scientists. They, they want it all and they want it now, um, so, so that was a challenge in itself. Astronomers and scientists getting involved with engineering solutions instead of focusing on science requirements. Now it's quite interesting, many of the astronomers and scientists that I've come across are also engineers and actually know quite a lot about building a radio telescope. And so it's, it, it highlights the need for proper requirement elicitation and requirement management um, in order to separate solution from requirements. A geographically dispersed project team, as I mentioned just now, we've got offices in Joba, Clearfontaine and Cape Town. Um, I also want to mention here that in the beginning phases of the project, our lead CAT7 systems engineer um, was working in Pretoria and only came down to Cape Town every week for a day or so. Um, that didn't really work. It, uh, things really improved significantly once the lead system engineer and the whole system engineering group was located in Cape Town with the engineering development team. A challenging Karoo environment. Now in the Karoo, any instrument that you place in the Karoo must be able to withstand strong winds, lightning, dust, large variations in temperature, you name it. It's quite a challenging uh, environment to put, a to put such a sensitive system in. Lack of infrastructure in the Karoo. Um, we had to build roads, power lines, water had to be organized, sewage, accommodation, you name it. Um, the Karoo was empty before we got there. Um, for a very good reason. I mean, the very reason we're putting a radio telescope in the middle of nowhere is because there's, there, there's no human uh, population that can generate radio frequency interference. Developing process maturity. Uh, since the SKA South Africa organization started fresh, we had to develop both the project management processes and the system engineering processes. And especially in the beginning phases, I still remember there was quite a shall I say, disconnect between the engineering team and the system engineering team, the, the development engineering team and the system engineering team, um, because the, I think the development engineering team regarded the system engineering process as cumbersome, um, keeping back progress, uh, being too rigid and so on. And one of the biggest breakthroughs we had in our organization was when we decided to send everybody the entire team on a systems engineering course, which at the time was given by Robert Halligan. Um, after the course, everybody understood the language, they understood the objectives, the purpose of system engineering, and from then onwards, there was a notable improvement in, in our interaction with the, with the engineering teams. Lack of user domain experience. The system engineering team has never built a radio telescope, and we also didn't possess any uh, knowledge about astronomy or the science thereof. So the, the domain knowledge had to be um, accumulated over time. Non-existence of enabling systems. Here we're talking mainly of uh, maintenance system and, and other support systems. Uh, those enabling systems also had to be uh, um, acquired as part of the CAT7 telescope. So with all those challenges, um, the system engineering process uh, embarks on a series of risk reduction development models. The first antenna we bought in the organization was the XDM, standing for Experimental Demonstrator Model. It's a single dish radio telescope and it's located at Hartrau um, near Pretoria. Um, then we've built CAT7, which is a seven antenna array. It's located in the Karoo where the Meerkat uh, array will be placed. Um, and in the meantime, work on Meerkat has already started. And Meerkat will be a state-of-the-art, world-class radio telescope consisting out of 64 antennas. Just a little bit regarding timelines. The XDM was started roughly sometime in 2006, and about 18 months later, um, from the concept definition, we were able to complete the acceptance testing on-site. Um, extremely aggressive timescales, um, a very successful project, and I think 
Um, quite a few international partners um, observed our progress and were quite astonished with how quickly we could get a radio telescope um, up and running. Um, some of the key parameters, it was a 15 meter prime focus dish, 1.4 to 1.7 gigahertz frequency range and 256 megahertz instantaneous bandwidth. CAT7 started immediately after the XTM sometime in 2008. Um, it's a, the first array we've built um, as an interferometric array. We've deployed and operated it on-site, which has also been challenging. Some of the key parameters, it's a 12-meter diameter dish, prime focus, um, 1.2 to 1.95 gigahertz frequency range, also 250 megahertz instantaneous bandwidth, and the maximum baseline, which is the distance between the two antennas which are furthest apart, is 185 meters. Uh, the arrow here goes until the end of 2012. I would like to say that CAT7 is complete. It's not yet complete. We are busy wrapping up the as-built baseline. I'll come to that a little bit later, which will be followed by the operational baseline. Um, and from a system engineering point of view, that will be the point in time where the system is handed over to the operations team. Um, that date was supposed to be end of this year. I think it will slip into the first few months of next year. And then the Meerkat timeline. Meerkat has already started in 2010 with the concept definition phase. Uh, in July last year, 2011, we had the PDR, the preliminary design review of Meerkat. And some of the key specs are given down here. In phase one, the frequency range will go from 0.9 to 1.67 gigahertz. Process bandwidth is 770 megahertz. Maximum by baselines of eight kilometers. And in phase two, we've got two more receivers, bigger instantaneous bandwidth and longer baselines. Good, I'll go through the different acquisition stages of CAT7 now, starting with the concept definition and exploration. It's interesting to note that CAT7 did not start its life with a formal user requirement statement. And the main reason is because the users of CAT7 were the engineers themselves who developed and built the system. Nevertheless, uh, in 2007, there was quite a lot of work done on the scope and development strategy of Meerkat. And the output of that investigation was that some parameters, among them the frequency band and the array configuration, were limited based on scientific capability, affordability, and technical feasibility. At the time, it was recommended that CAT7 should become the start of Meerkat. In other words, it shouldn't be a telescope all on its own. It should really become the start of Meerkat and then grow out to however many dishes. Now, this did not materialize uh, because the scope of the project has changed considerably, and that includes timescales, budgets, and user requirements. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. No, we, we, def we developed a, user, a requirement specification for CAT7. And in a later slide, you'll see we had 1,040 system-level requirements for CAT7. Well, we had, we had scientific input. Um, it wasn't that there, wasn't, uh, that there were no science requirements at all. Um, and in fact, the this, this, this scope and development strategy was quite an extensive investigation on what Meerkat will look like and what science it is supposed to be able to do. And from that document, we've developed all the, all the requirement specifications. Um, no, there was no requirement as such that CAT7 should, should uh, become um, a meerkat. Um, also, the, the project went through quite, shall I say, turbulent times with the injection of more money and the international SKA project, you know, going into a different direction. So, and then we've had a major concept uh, design review for meerkat itself which changed the design significantly from prime focus antennas to um, offset Gregorian dishes. And from then onwards, everything, you know, Meerkat really went on a different tangent. Great. Just a, a figure showing the system breakdown of CAT7. At the highest level, we've got the CAT7 system consisting out of the support segment, the telescope segment, and the infrastructure segment. Um, the telescope segment, furthermore, is subdivided into various subsystems. There's the antenna structure subsystem, the feed assembly subsystem, which, by the way, is managed by EMSS, company in Stellenbosch, the RF front-end, digital back-end, control and monitoring, science processing, and cooling subsystem. And then some of these subsystems are further divided into sub-subsystems. The concept demonstration validation of CAT7 was mainly done by analysis and simulation. 
Um, but in some aspects, you could regard the XTM that I mentioned earlier as the advanced development model for CAT7. Now remember, the XTM and CAT7 are development models for Meerkat. But in this talk, I'm regarding CAT7 as a system in its own right, um, which hasn't had uh, more uh, you know, development models to prove its concept. But the XDM definitely demonstrated that the required technology exists in the South African technology base. Um, and it also, one of the major objectives of the XDM was to form a coherent engineering team that can work together and to, to, to mature the system engineering uh, processes. So, so that was definitely a, a very good project. And here we've got the line, 1,040 system level requirements were recorded in core. I'll talk a bit more about core. Cores are this, the software tool that we use to capture our requirements. Just a quick diagram showing um, the architecture design process that we followed. Um, from the architecture driving requirements, we end up with a list of requirements for each subsystem. So um, of the 1,040 system level requirements, some of them drive <coughs> the architecture. Uh, obviously, at subsystem level, you'll have many more than 1,040 requirements. Uh, the architecture design process itself is an iteration between the physical decomposition and the functional analysis. And starting with the subsystem requirements, the project then goes into full-scale engineering development. Now, I've shown here the engineering V diagram, which encapsulates quite a lot of important information. Um, number one, it shows that the system is a multi-layered hierarchy with with each level being a system in its own right. Um, the system design starts at the top level and gets further refined uh, at the bottom level. You've got time here on the horizontal axis. And then the ver system verification process starts at the bottom level and goes to the top level. And at each level, the, the emergent behavior of the integrated system gets verified. So if I, if I read the, the blocks here, we start with an operational concept description or user requirement statement. Um, by the way, we, we did have an operational concept description for CAT7, which also elicited and, and helped us to define all the requirements for CAT7. Um, we've got the telescope requirement specification. Then at subsystem level, we've got subsystem requirement specification, product specification, down to design manufacture. And then at the factory level, the factory integration testing verifies the product specification. Laboratory integration testing verifies the subsystem requirements. Telescope integration commissioning verifies the telescope requirements. And operations process validates the user requirements. Now, also what this diagram shows is that the, uh, there's a lot of emphasis on a requirements-driven design and rigorous testing. Um, also, the traceability of lower-level requirements to system-level requirements is important as this ensures that nothing is done unnecessarily and that everything necessary is done. Good. Qualification and acceptance testing. Just a few more uh, points. We've done qualification testing on all items, whereas acceptance testing is typically performed on all production items. Now, acceptance testing is typically a subset of qualification testing. Of course, qualification testing, the item is, undergoes rigorous testing for ingress protection, transportability, uh, uh, radio frequency interference protection, and so on. And for production items, your main aim is to, to verify that the device or the item has been built according to the product specification. Now, I've put a few numbers here which are very rough. Um, I didn't count the number of ATPs that we had, but I, I approximate, approximate that we've had about 50 factory-level ATPs, um, about 30 lab inspection ATPs, about 20 on-site installation ATPs, and then we've got two system-level ATPs. Of course, the CAT7 project was, um, was, was done in a phase one stage and in a phase two. And the phase two had ad additional functionality that phase one doesn't, doesn't have. Um, here are a few of the key performance indicators because from the requirements, you want to verify that you've actually achieved what you set out to do. 
and of all the important uh, performance indicators, we've we've met all the all the requirements that we've set out. And some of the more challenging ones are the noise temperature of the system (TSIS). We specified less than 35 Kelvin when the antennas are pointing at zenith, and we've we've achieved achieved about 25 Kelvin looking at zenith, and about 30 Kelvin for elevations that are greater than 30 degrees. Note, as the antenna starts pointing to the horizon, you get spillover from the ground, and that, that increases the system temperature. Also, the polariza polarization purity that we specified, we've also achieved, and that's, that's, that's quite important as well. Bandwidth would be 256 megahertz. Yeah, so if you do the calculations, I, I, I don't have the number in, 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 in watts. Yeah, but what it implies is that we've got cryogenically cooled receivers. Uh, we're using Stirling coolers to cool the receivers. Uh, the LNAs are cooled to about 77 Kelvin um, in order to achieve that, that noise flow. Moving over to integration verification. Um, the integration lab in Cape Town was used extensively, and that was a major philosophy of ours. Detect problems in Cape Town where you've got the engineering teams to sort out the problems before you ship stuff to site. Um, problems on site are very difficult to solve. You know, nobody wants to go to site, everybody blames the other subsystem. You, know, you really want to do as much testing in Cape Town as possible. Um, integration test beds were not used since the number of production items was manageable. We only have seven uh, antennas and most of the items uh, per antenna we produced nine off so that we've got two spares. Hardware simulators were used to qualify the control and monitoring system. That was also very important, so that the, the software, the control and monitoring software, could be qualified and tested extensively in the, in the lab in Cape Town. We didn't have to do it on site. Um, the final system level ATP for phase one of CAT7 was finished in 2011, and the ATP for phase, due, phase two is due end of 2012. During our integration verification, verification effort, we've definitely verified the two iron laws of a system's life cycle, and I'm quoting Atsparius here. One, problems downstream are symptoms of neglect upstream. Upstream problems can only be solved upstream. So we've definitely learned some lessons in that regard. This is just a diagram showing roughly what one of the integration planning tools that we used um, all these round dots indicate integration test events. Um, green indicates something is on time. If it's red, it means uh, an item is late. Um, and we use this quite extensively during our integration uh, time of CAT7. Industrialization production. Um, CAT7 is a one-off system. There was no uh, production stage and hence also no industrialization stage, which will be... Um, well, for many of the subsystems, uh, for Meerkat, which, which consists out of 64 antennas, the production and industrialization phase is actually very important and will require a lot more attention than what we've done for CAT7. Going over to the commissioning stage, um, at, in our organization we distinguish between engineering verification, commissioning and user verification. Now, engineering verification verifies that the system meets the system requirements. Um, qualification and acceptance testing is performed on all system levels and it's seen as part of the full-scale engineering development stage. Commissioning involves the characterization and calibration of the instrument and it also establishes the user system which means that from the engineering deliverable the commissioning process makes sure that the system can be used and operated and m managed and, and controlled by the operators. So it kind of um, polishes the edges, um, which is actually quite important. User verification verifies that the system meets the requirements of the science user and the operational user. Um, in, in fact, we're currently busy with a science verification program where we are doing a lot of the CAT7 science on a small scale, or the Meerkat science on a small scale with CAT7 in order to really see if the system meets all the, the, the important specifications. Um, good. Utilization, support and retirement. Now these are uh, stages of the life cycle of a system. They're not actually part of the acquisition process, but they're very important, so I do want to say a few words about them. Um, 
CAT7's utilization was seen to be limited to a relatively short time period and limited to engineering operations and only some scientific operations. Now, this view is starting to change. Um, CAT7 is actually performing surprisingly well and there's a lot of science or demand from scientists to have time on the system and produce papers, um, which means that logistic support is becoming very important. And that's where the current emphasis is at the moment, is on the logistic support. Um, we're currently in the process of performing a lot of physical configuration audits to verify that the documentation we have of the system, including data packs and manuals and so on, actually matches the physical uh, installation on site. Um, that'll bring us to the as-built baseline, and we're hoping to reach that within the next two or three months. Thereafter, we are going to embark on the operational baseline, which includes things like, are all the maintenance tasks defined? Do we have maintenance manuals for all the, all the items? Um, all the maintenance tasks uh, uh, written up and integrated in the in, uh, integrated logistics support system and so on. Um, and we, we were hoping to have the operational baseline by the end of this year, but I think it will spill over into the first few months of next year. And the operational baseline, in my view, is the time where we hand over CAT7 to the operators. Right, retirement of CAT7. Now, nobody's really thought about retirement for CAT7 yet. And my feeling is it has a life of at least another five years and then Meerkat will start to supersede the capability of CAT7. Um, my prediction is that there'll always be some science users that want to use CAT7 for whatever purpose and if, it's, uh, if it doesn't cost too much money, I'm sure CAT7 will continue running for, for a lot longer. Just going back to the logistic support functions, the mission and operation functions um, consist out of the CAT7 telescope and the operators and maintainers. And that's where most of the effort has been to date. Uh, we're now focusing on the logistic support functions, which includes supplies, facilities, support, test and training equipment, and also data. A little bit about the tools that we used. Uh, for systems engineering, we're using the core software from Vita Corporation for capturing of requirements and verification requirements, requirements, traceability, and also for functional modeling. Um, for our configuration management system, we're using Enterprise Bridge, or EB, which controls the as-built, as-maintained, and as-operated information, contains history and latest revision of all documents, drawings, data sheets, and manuals, and also manages all the waivers and engineering change proposals. And for our maintenance system, we're using ramlock.net, which manages all the maintenance tasks, collects, consolidates, and reports failure and repair data, creates dispatches and collects electronic work orders, job cards, item orders, and delivery notes. Just a short summary for each of these three, three software tools. Lessons learned. Again, that doesn't mean we, we didn't learn anything. I'm going to go through them one by one. Ensure that the system engineering management plan, the SEMP, is tailored to the project, clearly written, and communicated to all subsystems. I think the tailoring of the system engineering process is very important. If, if there's too much process overhead, you get resistance from the team, inefficiencies, and ineffective use of, of scarce resources. But equally important is to ensure that the system engineering process is tailored for each subsystem. Um, that's a note that um, Thomas Kussel, who's the lead uh, Meerkat system engineer, made. Um, it's, it, subsystems are very different. For example, the infrastructure, infrastructure and ancillary subsystems is very different to the software subsystem, which is, again, very different to hardware subsystems. And it's important to tailor the process for each of them. And in fact, one of the things we are now demanding from each subsystem is a development plan. And in the development plan, the subsystem spells out the whole development process, uh, how they see things going forward, and it forces them to read the SEMP and understand it, because they have to know for each baseline what documentation is required, what are the entry criteria for a baseline, what are the exit criteria, all those things. Ensure that each subsystem goes through the requirements review process and produces a requirement specification that has been formally reviewed. Now, for CAT7, we've had examples where the system engineering team provided allocated requirements to a subsystem and the subsystem just 
took those requirements as is and gave them to their subcontractors without actually digesting them and, and working with them and making sure that they understand them correctly. Um, or a subsystem would just take the allocated requirements and immediately go into the uh, development process and only months or years later was there feedback or pushback saying we can't do this you know, or we don't quite understand this. So it's really important that subsystems go through the review process and of course the, the formally reviewing a requirement specification is a very important stage as well. Ensure that each subsystems or subcontractors critical design review is accompanied by a fully signed off qualification test report which verifies that the design meets the given requirements. Now at the CDR stage you want to formally sign off the design but you can only you, you have, you've only verified that the design meets the requirements once you've got the results of a qualification test procedure. Um, and we've had examples where the, the QTP was not fully signed off or even performed at, at CDR stage. Avoid granting waivers too easily because problems downstream become more and more difficult to resolve. Now, I've yet to see an acceptance test procedure that passes 100% first time. There's, there are always issues. The problem is by the time a subsystem uh, does an acceptance test procedure or, or QTP, there's a lot of uh, time pressure to, to start integrating that deliverable at a high level. Um, and especially for uh, a project like CAT7, which by many people is only regarded as a prototype or a stepping stone, you know, there's a lot of pressure to accept a waiver. You know, the device, the item maybe failed in one or two regards, but it's not that bad. Um, now, I know that those pressures will come for Meerkat as well. And we've got all the best intentions not to yield to them, um, but it, 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 it's going to be a challenge. The project management pressure of timelines often um, works against the system engineering process of making sure that everything is properly tested at every given stage. We, we demand the, the QTP, just the, the test procedures at the PDR stage and at, at the CDR stage we actually demand the actual qualification test results. Um, at the, yeah, it does imply that, that some uh, a, a concept model has, has already been built. Um, or, I mean, you, you can often qualify the design through simulation or, or, or something like that. But um, it, especially for systems like the digital backend, you know, they will have demonstrator models which they'll qualify f as part of the CDR. And then at the requirements review st uh, baseline, which is even before the PDR, we request a development plan which already sets out... Um, large qualification test events and, and, and you know, it, it tackles the, the big problems uh, early on. Right, there's a second page. We learned many lessons. <laughs> Ensure that subcontracted configuration <coughs> items are not only acceptance tested at the factory, but also at the integration lab where appropriate, as well as on-site after, after the installation process has been completed. Now we've had lots of examples for CAT7 where a subcontractor delivered an item which was fully uh, acceptance tested and the engineering team took that item and just installed it on site without further testing. Now on site it's not necessarily to go through the whole ATP again. The on site installation ATP would typically just make sure that you know connectors are fastened correctly um, make sure that everything's installed properly. But in many examples, we didn't have formal ATPs for installations on site. And it's amazing how little problems just a week or two later then suddenly become so much more difficult to, to correct and solve. Include logistic support analyses early in the process as part of management plans, requirement specifications, and contractual requirements. Now, logistic support is always something that I think people are not used to doing or don't like to do. Um, for Meerkat, we are insisting now that every subsystem does an FMECA. That's a failure mode and effectiveness and criticality analysis. Um, and that has, no, I'm not an expert in that area, but I can see the value that it's adding. Um, it, it can influence the design 
because if an item is critical and is prone to failure, you know, you can build in redundancy. Um, and it also makes sure that you uh, monitor all your failure modes. Now for CAT7, we've got many thousands of sensors distributed throughout the whole system. But only a small percentage are really necessary to monitor the health of the system. And what's worse is we lack sensors that directly monitor some of the, the failures that, that we're expecting. So um, FMICA uh, are definitely a good idea. And combined with this is collect, design, manufacture and as-built information as part of the final acceptance of a delivered item, not later. This information needs to form part of contract milestones. We are struggling at the moment, well, it, we actually passed that stage, but we did struggle about getting data packs and manufacturing information um, from subsystems because the people have disappeared or gone on to other work. Um, it's, it's very important to get all of this as built information as at, at the latest um, at the final acceptance of a delivered item. And perform a physical physical configuration audit immediately after an item's final installation acceptance testing has been completed. We are, we've, gone, we've started going through physical configuration audits and not all data packs match what's installed on site. Um, we've had a few discrepancies um, and to correct them is difficult if, if, if you wait too long because again subcontractors have been paid, they've disappeared or subsystems have become busy with other work. I think we've had the least problems with subcontracted items. I think we've had the most problems with uh, items that were delivered or manufactured in-house. Um, in fact, a lot, of, a lot of simple things like our own technicians install GPS receivers and all the wiring for fire alarms and intrusion detection and all, all those little things. Um, we neglected to record electrical diagrams, um, where the cables run, all the interfaces and so on. Now we've caught up with it. We, we've actually got, we actually done very well, I think, with regard to all those data packs and all that information. Um, but largely we've, we've neglected it um, ourselves. Yeah. So all lessons learned, I think this is the last one. Ensure that the configuration management system is always up to date and that everybody in the organization is using it correctly. Yeah, what can I say more? <laughs> um, I want to give a few acknowledgements. Uh, Thomas Kussel, who uh, was the CAT7 lead system engineer and is now the lead system engineer for Meerkat. Adrian Piensho, who is responsible for all performance-related issues. Clifford Gumede, who was the interface manager for CAT7. Daryl Liebenberg, who is the senior logistic engineer. Kexen Magusore, who helped with the integration aspects. And Peter Kotzier, who manage the final system level ATP. Um, now this concludes sort of the formal aspect of my talk. I've got a few more slides with pretty pictures and so on and I'll just go through them quite quickly. I don't know what the, uh, if there's still time. Um, would, okay, it, it won't take more than uh, three or four minutes. This is just a picture of the operator sitting in Cape Town uh, looking at the CAT7 array. It, it, it's important to note that CAT7 can be operated and controlled remotely. So we don't need to have somebody on site to, to record data. This is our first single dish image over here. And it compares very well with uh, the same galaxy that was observed by the Hartrau instrument. This is an image formed with the first four antennas of CAT7. This, this blob over here. Now with four antennas you can't expect too much spatial resolution, so it's, it's just a blob, but it's an it's important blob. <laughs> um, this, this image was taken with uh, all CAT7 antennas, cryogenically cooled, and this image actually corresponds extremely well with, uh, with images that have been done with other telescopes. Um, sure. Well, um, what we're observing is obviously radio frequencies. So what's happening out in the universe is that some process um, emits frequencies um, or electrons or photons at that frequency. Um, most of it is uh, hydrogen. If the electron in a hydrogen atom uh, moves by one level or so, it emits a frequency at 1420 megahertz. And then if that frequency is Doppler shifted, uh, or the amount of Doppler shift gives you information on how fast the galaxy is moving away from you, or if it's rotating, 
Um, so, yes, it's the it's the intense. It's just the intensity versus uh, spatial. These are spatial coordinates. So right ascension and declination. So it's as if you were to take a, an optical image of a of a portion in the sky, and the color coding is the the intensity of the of yes yeah. So this is a, a what's called a continuum image where all the 256 megahertz of frequency that you've recorded are integrated into one image. And you also get what's called spectral line images or spectral line cubes where you form an image per channel and you, you stack the different frequencies on top of each other. These are probably not. Um, this radio source probably uh, radiates fairly equally at all frequencies. So I'm expecting that this radio source um, looks pretty much the same at all frequencies. But um, integrating all the frequencies gives you better signal-to-noise ratio. I'm not an expert in what scientists do. I, I actually find it amazing how, I mean, these signals are minuscule. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the amount of science that, that scientists and astronomers do with, with these faint signals is absolutely amazing. I mean, Well, I think one of the nicest parts for me of the project is you come across scientists who give like uh, lectures or presentations and you, you understand that little, but you get exposed to pulsars and black holes and, you know, um, people looking at rotating galaxies or colliding galaxies and it's, it's actually quite amazing how how much exciting stuff the universe has to offer. Um, as, an, as an example of how weak these signals are, if you had a cell phone on the moon um, radiating isotropically um, and the telescope would pointing at the moon, it would appear, the cell phone would appear as the brightest radio source out there, except for the sun, which is, which is even brighter. So that, that just gives an idea of how weak the signals are that astronomers try to detect. Yeah, <laughs> millions of years, yeah. In fact, we've got another telescope on site called PAPER, which operates in the 100 to 200 megahertz region. Now, remember what I said, the, the hydrogen emitting at 1420 megahertz, that frequency has been Doppler shifted right down to 100 to 200 megahertz, which means the information that they detect stems from galaxies that are very far away. And the whole objective of paper is to image the epoch of reionization. So it's the, it's the time in the universe where instead of just a plasma fluid where light can't penetrate, the, the universe started to become um, um, visible. You know, light could start to travel and that's, that's what they want to see. And you can't go back further. I mean, that, that's really the edge. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, just an idea of the Meerkat site, there's Carnarvon here, here's Clearfontaine, that's a dirt road, and here's the Lostburg site complex, um, that's the Meerkat site here, that's another image of the Lostburg site complex, accommodation areas, this huge shed here is where the antennas were manufactured, um, here are the pedestals being transported to site, here's, uh, here's an uh, example of a completed reflector that's lifted off, off the mold, it's a composite uh, structure. Here it leaves the, the, the dish shed um, on site being mounted onto the pedestal. Why build meerkat? Um, I, I believe the presentation will be made available. So we don't have to go through this in detail. Maybe just the first sentence. To be an inspiring flagship project for highlighting South African competence in technology and science and enhancing South Africa's participation in the global knowledge community. Economy. This is an artist's impression of what Meerkat will look like. Um, then there's the International SKA project. Um, it will consist out of three types of technologies. There's the mid-frequency dish array. That's what Meerkat will, will be. Um, there's the dense aperture array, which are very low frequency receivers, and the sparse aperture array. The sparse aperture array is the only instrument that is completely um, in, located in Australia. Um, these white, white dots indicate SKA stations. They're not individual um, antennas. They are stations with, with, I don't know, a few hundred antennas each. 
Um, why build it in South in, in Africa? Well, there's a lot of very good reasons, which you can feel free to browse through when you when you see the presentation on the internet. Um, how does the SKA benefit South Africa? Well, obviously we're hoping that there'll be technology spin-offs, um, research job and study opportunities will be created, advances in high-performance computing to process the large amounts of data, graduates are going to be given exposure to the international arena, skills required to operate and maintain broadband optical fiber, motivate young people to go into engineering and the sciences, and it's, I think it's all summarized here, the generation of new knowledge and knowledge workers, young scientists and engineers with cutting-edge skills and expertise in a wide range of scarce and innovative fields. Uh, human capital development, very important aspect of the SKA South Africa project. This just gives some statistics on the total number of grants, bursaries and postdoctoral fellowships that have been awarded. A uh, few websites that might be of interest to people interested in astronomy. And that's the last slide. Do you have any more questions? Any questions? Mm. Yes, it's in currently in Manchester. And it, in October, it will be moved to George Bank, which is about 40 kilometers, I think, outside of Manchester. A big challenge. Um, now, we've, myself and Thomas Kussel, we recently, uh, in fact, two or three weeks ago, we, were, we spent a week in Manchester to start uh, seeing how we can start collaborating with them. Um, now, the SKA is, is still faces tremendous challenges. Um, because the site decision has only been done recently, they can only now ramp up their own office in terms of system engineers and project managers. Um, and it's a young organization. You know, they were, they're now in the position where we were a few years ago. So they're still facing the challenge of growing the maturity. Um, and I think they are heavily relying on the Pathfinder instruments, which are us here in, in South Africa, and then the ESCAP telescope in Australia. Um, because there you've got uh, fully functional organizations with system engineers and project management managers that have got all the necessary expertise to to lead such a telescope. Um, but yeah, the, the SKA is definitely still a very challenging um, uh, project. Um, many, many more challenges <laughs> than what I've listed here for our little project. In fact, just the, the decision-making process is much easier in-house. You know, we've made some very firm decisions where we've um, maybe disappointed a few scientists but we could, we could do these decisions fairly easily and communicate it fairly easily locally. For the SKA, you know, there's a lot of political pressure. Um, you rely on the funding of all the member countries. And if you start upsetting member countries by not allowing their technology to be incorporated, you know, they withdraw the money. And there's a lot of, lot of challenges that, that the organization faces. What is, yeah? What are the, is it likely to extend past the current... I think we've got 10 at the moment. I think India joined recently. Um, I think there was talk of Namibia or Angola joining. I'm not 100% not sure. I think that if the SKA can show progress, and especially if there's some early signs that can be done in maybe five or, or, or eight years, um, I think more countries will probably want to come on board and, and join the, the party, so to speak. Um, if, if there's not sufficient progress, then it's possible that members will withdraw. You know, there's no, no you know, um, return on investment. Uh, the way I understand it is that a lot, of, um, a lot of countries have got research money that they want to spend anyhow, but by spending it on technologies that might be useful for SKA, they can maybe write it off as contribution to the SKA project and which buys them certain percentage of time for their scientists to, to use the final, final telescope. Um, your, your tax money paid a, a small amount of it. Well, the, the South African SKA project is fully funded by the Department of Science and Technology. So it's a government project which is funded by taxpayers' money. Um, so there's a lot of emphasis on 
I think one of the biggest benefits for the country is the the whole upliftment of make of showing South Africans, especially young South Africans, that we are capable of of performing you know high end scientific and, and technological work. So it, it it motivates young people to maybe study science and engineering and it, it causes us to interact much more easily with um, international science scientists and so on. So it, it, it really opens our, our horizons and visions. I don't think the radio telescope can make money. I, 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 I wouldn't know how. Um, I mean, I'm sure with Meerkat, you know, time is being promised to scientists all over the world. Um, maybe there's some, I mean, there must be some return or some payment in some form. No, I don't think that's fair. Um, I think there was a recent discussion regarding the Antenna Tender Award, which I think is probably the biggest tender. I think it's 640 million rand or something, like that, 680. Now, the tender is awarded to Stratoset, Stratoset, yeah? Yeah, um, who will immediately, uh, you know, keep 75% of that money goes to them, and the other 25% to GDSatcom, which is uh, some kind of partner company in in the states and in Germany, I think. So most of the money will stay in South Africa, and of course all the infrastructure money, which probably, I mean, I think most of Meerkat is probably salaries and infrastructure and maybe the, the antennas, um, all the infrastructure work is awarded locally. You know, laying of power lines, um, trenches, uh, civil structures and so on. I think also the, the, the tender process, being a government project, is very, very strict and, and regulated. And a large um, emphasis is given on trying to get local companies to to win win the win the tenders. Thanks right. So Thank you.